Please grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6. We will get to 2 Corinthians 6, but first, we will go to 1 Corinthians 6. That's where we'll be. do want to remind you also that there's a uh, mid-year business meeting, a quick one. After the service today, all are welcome to attend. Shouldn't take longer than about 10 min- minutes, okay? That's our expectation, so a quick uh, touching base on a couple of items and... Um, You'll be off to lunch after that, okay? So that's happening right after the service over in the coin. We'll meet in the coin for that. All right. Well, how about I pray, and then uh, we will get started into what we have in front of us today. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us, for the opportunity to serve you and grow in our faith, the opportunity to understand more about your word and about what it is you're doing in the world. We ask together that we would grow in not only in knowledge, but in love today through the time that we spend in your word together. We also ask that though I'm a fallen man, that I would not get in the way of your word this morning, but that you would make your word clear to your people. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul in 2 Corinthians, has reached the conclusion of the defense of his ministry for now. He's going to pick that theme back up again. But as we've been reading through 2 Corinthians, we've seen over and over again Paul defending his ministry to that church that had been hoodwinked by some false teachers. And now it's to the point in that letter, he's about to give them some very pointed instruction. He's entering into a a serious charge to them that they would not be unequally yoked. This is that famous passage, because we use this phrase a lot, about being unequally yoked. And I want to go slow through this. I want to take our time defining things through this passage. So this is a part one, part two situation. You're in part one today, and next, next Sunday we'll look at part two of what it means to be unequally yoked. This week we'll be looking mostly at the principles at play, and next week we'll get into the application. But in that letter of 2 Corinthians, uh, his defense of his ministry in many ways has been leading up to this point where he is urging that church to cleave to him. You know that phrase, leave and cleave, right? Uh, We get that from Genesis about marriage. Uh, A man is to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Well, in a sense, Paul is speaking to these Corinthians and urging them to leave the false apostles, leave the false teachers, and instead cleave to him, a true apostle of Christ. He's urging them in the passage that Rex read for us at the start of the service there, to separate from false teaching. That is the big idea, that they would be separate from false teaching. But you see, these Corinthians, they really struggled with discernment. (laughs) They They had trouble discerning how to apply truth to their lives, and subsequently, they struggled with holiness. There's a connection between those two things. If you struggle with discernment, you're going to struggle with holy living. There's a direct connection. These Corinthians, we learn from the two letters that have been preserved, these Corinthians partnered with pagans in their culture. 
They defiled themselves, they defiled the church of God by their close association, so close it could be called fellowship, with pagans, with people who were against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead of separating from their culture, so often they were conforming to their culture. And that is an ongoing challenge for God's church in all ages, in all contexts, It's how to be in the world, but not of the world. How to be separate from the world around us without taking it to the extreme. But to see the Corinthians-specific situation, let's look at 1 Corinthians 6, the start of that chapter. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 1, one of the many issues that Paul addressed in that letter was the way that they were involving unbelievers in their church disagreements. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in 1, Paul writes, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to, bro- goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? <laughs> imagine that. Can you, can you imagine here, here at this church, we were just constantly suing one another. We would lose members fast, I got a feeling. You'd lose a pastor fast, I know that much. If we were constantly suing one another, that would just be uh, a terrible testimony. But Paul's point here wasn't necessarily their testimony with the outside world, but the fact that they should be wise enough to handle matters on their own. There's coming a time when Christians are going to judge angels. What an amazing thought. That as glorified believers in Christ, there's coming a day when we will no longer be a little lower than the angels. We'll actually be judging them. And so Paul is saying, bring that reality to bear now. Bring that reality to bear on the here and now in that you should be able to handle matters in the church among yourselves. So they're showing a great lack of discernment and saying, now let's outsource our church problems. Let's outsource our believer-to-believer conflicts to the pagans around us who judge with, let's just say, different standards, right? The unbelievers have different convictions, different motivations, different standards. And as we read through that first letter to the Corinthians, we see it wasn't just their suing of one another, but they were practicing sexual immorality still. They were still struggling with that sin. And not only that, but with pagan temples, they were going and and joining in idol worship in pagan temples and practicing sexual immorality there, they had so many problems because they were not separating from their culture. They were not taking the call to holiness seriously enough. They weren't bringing it to bear on their Monday through Saturday living, you could say. But they were defiling themselves and defiling the church. And this is extremely serious. Because God's people are to be a holy lot. If you're here today bearing the name of Christ, you are to be separated unto Christ. 
You are to be holy not in name only, but in living. In that first letter to the Corinthians, Paul opened it up in uh, chapter 1, verse 2, by saying, "...to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling." All of God's people are called to be saints. On the one hand, you're already called a saint. You have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. You're set apart in Him eternally. No one can undo that. You are in Christ forever and ever. God sees you as righteous because of the work of Jesus. But on the other hand, sanctification is a process, isn't it? And we are called to be saints in this life, to live saintly, to be set apart for God in the world. And so as we get to our passage today in 2 Corinthians 6, I want us to have all of this in mind. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 is where we'll be, and I'll read 14, 15 in the first part of 16. Paul now urges them, "'Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness?' Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. I want to take time here to pause and define the two sides. Because hopefully it's clear just by reading that, you've got two sides at play, don't you? You've got two realms, two opposing realms And Paul is urging them as members of one realm not to be bound together with those in the other realm. There are two kingdoms that exist, and Christians make choices. We, each one of us, make choices related to these kingdoms every day. Almost every moment of our lives, we make choices relating to these kingdoms, whether we will serve Christ or serve idols, whether we will bow the knee down to God Himself, or we'll puff ourselves up, whether we will serve ourselves or whether we will serve Christ and others. There are two domains, and the domain you belong to entirely depends on your faith or lack thereof in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to make sure this is clear. This isn't like you get to bounce around, choose which kingdom you want to throughout your life. You either belong to one perpetually or to the other perpetually based on the faith you have or do not have in Jesus. It all goes back to the gospel. That is the the watershed. That's the dividing line between these two kingdoms. If you are a believer in the biblical gospel, recognizing that you were a sinner in need of salvation and there was nothing you could do to save yourself, but that God the Son, the eternal God Himself, condescended, as Pastor Tyler was explaining, that He humbly came. He took on flesh. He lived a life among us. He lived a perfect life among us. And He died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day, ascending into heaven. If you recognize that that's what God has done for your salvation and you put the full weight of your trust in that, not bringing any of your own works to the table, not trying to squeeze in any other kind of philosophy or self-help into that message, but if you say, that's it, that's the good news, that's what I'm hanging my eternity on, then you are in God's realm. You are a member of God's kingdom. You are a member of the church. You are in Jesus Christ 
now and forever. But if you reject the biblical gospel, which means any slight rejection, you can't be a 99.9% believer in the gospel, but a slight rejection of this message of grace, the message of good news, then you are relegated to the other domain. You belong to the other kingdom. You are no longer a member of the kingdom of righteousness, but you are a member of the kingdom of lawlessness. Those are the two options, and it all depends on what you do with the gospel. These are dichotomies that Paul lists, 14 through 16. You'll hear some people say, uh, are you this or are you that? And the choices aren't very good. And you'll say, that's a false dichotomy. I can be both or whatever. This isn't a false dichotomy. What Paul is listing off here are two kingdoms. That's a true dichotomy. If you are one, you cannot be the other. If you belong to one realm, you cannot belong to the other. Just like you can't have unbelief as your defining uh, status and be a believer. You're either, you're either a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ or you are not. And we cannot try to mix these two realms. That's what Paul is urgently communicating to this church, is do not try to bring these dichotomous kingdoms into one accord. It cannot happen. Now, before we get into the rest of the message, because we're going to get into some serious and heavy stuff, I want to uh, give you a lighthearted illustration of this in a way that maybe might connect with, uh, with some of you. I've got three images queued up about what it looks like to try to bring together two opposing realms or two opposing uh, realities. How about this one? Roy, do you have any commentary on that? That just looks wrong, doesn't it? <clears throat> we can't combine these two things. They're opposed, right? I mean, maybe the next one will hit home with others of you. Apple and Windows together, huh? Can that happen? Remember those Mac and PC commercials they used to have? I'm a Mac, I'm a PC. Well, what if we just blended them? You can't, you can't do it. Oh, and Dean left. Well, the next one's for Dean. How about this one? <laughs> <clears throat> just doesn't look right, does it? You can't combine these two opposing realms, or in this case, companies. They are not meant to be combined they compete with one another. They're opposed to one another. So have that in mind. It's that sort of thing that Paul is pointing out. And in this passage, it's not just Christian and non-Christian, though that would be a true way to explain this, but Paul uses other terms. Paul doesn't use the term Christian or non-Christian. And those, two, those other terms actually reveal the issues at play. It's the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, not just the kingdom of Christianity or the kingdom of non-Christianity. And we'll get to the terms that are used in between them, these yoking terms like fellowship or partnership or agreeing. We'll get to those later in the message. For now, I want to make sure that we know what is being presented, what these two kingdoms are. And so the first one that we see as we look in this text in verse 14 is the realm of righteousness or kingdom of righteousness and the domain of lawlessness. So on the one hand, you have a, a domain of knowing holiness, pursuing holiness, caring about righteousness, the very righteousness of God. And on the other hand, you have this realm, this domain of not knowing holiness, not caring about righteousness, not seeking to live a holy life. 
Those are, of course, directly opposed. And we can go to other places in Scripture that outline this, namely Romans 6, starting in verse 16, where Paul's writing to the believers there, and he explains the opposition of righteousness and lawlessness. When he says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, resulting in death, or of obedience, resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. What an amazing passage. But if we were to take away the big point as it relates to our discussion today, you cannot be a slave to righteousness and to lawlessness at the same time. You are either a slave to righteousness, caring about the holiness of God, bringing that to bear on your life, or not. Now, of course, we still sin. There are times where we're vacillating here. But in any action that you commit in your life, you cannot at the same time, at once, be a slave of sin and a slave of righteousness. It's one or the other because the two are diametrically opposed. The next terms that we see in our passage are light and darkness. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of fallen creation, you could say. And this is an absolutely clear dichotomy. Where light is, there can be no darkness. Light dispels the darkness. And in the light, darkness cannot exist. It's not just Paul who spoke in this way, talking about light and darkness. In fact, the Apostle John, it's a very common motif in John's writings to go back to light and darkness and the dichotomy that exists there. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, he says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. The light is where we meet God. The light is where we walk with God. It's God's realm because He is light. Isn't that an amazing verse? God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. He is comprehensively pure and holy. So Christians are to bring that kind of clarity into their lives. We are to be beacons of light in the world. Remember, Jesus told His disciples, you are the lights of the world. We are to be lights and to have no fellowship with darkness. We aren't to be known for the lies that we tell. We are not to be known for the confusion that we bring to the situation. We are to be known for the clarity, the light that we bring based on the Word of God. The next set of terms that we get in our passage are Christ and Belial. What an interesting name, Belial. It doesn't come up too often in your Bible, does it? But it does come up a few times, and what we know is that this is just simply another term for Satan. Your Bible might say Satan. And the question is, what harmony has Christ with Satan? 
It's almost laughable, isn't it, to think what harmony Christ could have with Satan. The prince of heaven versus the prince of the present world. The king versus the God of this age. What could they have in common? What harmony could they find? Christ and Satan are radically different in their purpose, in their living, in the way that they conduct themselves. And so we as Christians, those who are in Christ, should stand out in the world. The world is Satan's domain. The world is where Satan has his kingdom. It's a temporary kingdom, but that's his domain. And so we should be different in our purpose, in our living in the same way. These are two different kingdoms. And we see that continue to be illustrated in verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And he goes on to clarify that we are the temple of the living God. Individually and corporately, so individually as Christians, we are the temple of God as God the Spirit resides in each one of us. Corporately, together in this fellowship, we can say this fellowship is a temple of God and that God is abiding here among us and we are to care about the temple. Something you'll know if you read your Old Testament is that idols have no place in the temple of God, do they? Lawlessness, debauchery, sin, that all that which is against God has no place in God's temple. What did the good kings do in the Old Testament? They undid what the bad kings did. They got the idols out. They took down the false gods. And so in the church and in our personal lives, we are temples of God. We are, as a fellowship, the temple of God, and we must care that we don't try to mix in the domain of darkness with the domain of Christ. And we do well to pause and remember, of course, why Paul is bringing all this up in the first place. All of this that Paul is explaining here has to do with our relationship with unbelievers. Remember the the opening command, verse 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. These are relationships that we have with the world. So all of these questions that follow have to do with that opening command, has to do with our relationship with those who do not believe the gospel. And this may seem harsh as you read through this, but the reality is that the gospel has ramifications. There are ramifications to truth. The the gospel we profess to believe, the truth we say we ascribe to, has bearing on our relationships. And again, we're going to take our time in explaining what that means, but that's the big picture. Believers cannot fellowship with unbelievers. Believers cannot endorse that which goes against our faith. It it can't happen. And we're not against people. As Christians, we, we don't set ourselves as people against other people. That is not the message of the New Testament. But what we are against are the spirits at work in them. A couple of passages that I want to show you, both from Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul is explaining to these Christians what their former life was like. He says, you were, and aren't we thankful to God as believers in Christ that this is past tense, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And what else? 
in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, they walked according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. There's a spirit at work. There's a prince of the power of the air who is at work that unbelievers walk in accordance with. For all of us who are Christians, there was a day before we were Christians where we were ultimately influenced by the evil spirits, not by God Himself, not by the Holy Spirit, but by that which is evil. You have to accept that. If you haven't accepted that, that's a key reality here, a key reality that's at play. Later in that same letter, Ephesians chapter 6, Paul wrote to them, starting in verse 10, saying, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. What an amazing passage. Our struggle is not with other people. Our struggle is against the forces at work, the invisible forces, that which is Satan's domain, the domain of darkness, the evil spirits at work in the world. So we love people. That, that has to be our heart. We have to love people as Christians who are in, in that other domain, those who are, are not Christians themselves, who exist in the other kingdom, the opposing realm. We should love them. We have to have God's heart toward them. But we cannot link arms with them, can we? We cannot have that fellowship with them that we have in God's domain with other believers. We must recognize that they're is a difference of kingdoms, and they are in a different opposing kingdom. So again, before defining what it means to be separate, let's dwell on this reality some more and consider how these kingdoms are at war with one another. I really want to drill this home. It might sound redundant, but if you don't get this, I don't think you're going to get the application of this passage, okay? There are kingdoms at war, and I want us to consider Colossians 1.13 to recognize some more what we were pulled out of in Colossians 1.13, Paul tells those Christians that God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So do you see here, do you embrace the reality that we got two domains? We got two kingdoms, and we were all once in that domain of darkness. All of us at, at one time in our lives were slaves to sin. We were under the forces of evil. We were not obedient to God. We were not children of God. We were not friendly with God. We, wouldn't, we were not on good terms with God. We were under the condemnation of God, and we were in the kingdom of the evil one. But in your salvation, if you're here today as a Christian, the good news, as you look back and consider the work that God has done in your life, is that He's rescued from that domain, rescued you from that domain, and He's put you in a new domain. He's taken you from the domain of darkness, and there's been a realm transfer for you where you are now in the kingdom of His Son. You now exist in Christ's kingdom. You're now in a new realm. You now have a new vision for life. You now have a new relationship with God. You now have salvation, that eternal life springing up 
as living water. But once upon a time, you were in spiritual darkness. When Jesus Christ himself was commissioning Paul as an apostle in Acts chapter 26, verse 18, Jesus said to, to Paul that he's sending him to the Gentiles. Well, why is he doing that? To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me, by faith in Christ himself. And that is what has happened to you, Christian. You have been sanctified, cleansed of all that dom- darkness domain stuff, cleansed of all the influence that, that was over you, binding on you. You've been freed from sin. And now you are clean in Christ. You are holy in Christ. You're made new. You're born again. You're a new creature in Jesus Christ. And you now exist in His kingdom. But all who remain in unbelief are relegated to the dark domain. That's from that great hymn by Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress. He talks about that dark domain. He gets that from Scripture, from Colossians 1. And all people who refuse Jesus Christ, all people who are not born again in Christ, are relegated to the dark domain forever and ever. Scripture talks about, of course, Hades, which we call hell. And eventually that will be thrown into the lake of fire and there will be gnashing of teeth. There will be torment forever and ever. Jesus called this outer darkness. There's going to be a place of eternal punishment for those who do not know Jesus Christ. For those who have not had Jesus take away their punishment, they will suffer that punishment of a holy and just God, an eternally holy creator of all things. As Christians, we know this reality, and we are just like stuck in this place, in this life between these kingdoms. Though we belong to one, we have constant temptations to fall back into the other, don't we? We belong to one realm, we belong to one domain, but we're constantly being tempted to act against our position. Like a dog returning to its vomit, so quickly we return to those sins. In Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16, again, the Apostle Paul wrote, Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Why? Well, we have to make the most of our time because the days are evil. You are living through evil days, Christian. I think we recognize that. I hope we have sensitivity to that. But that's the basis for the urgency here. As we approach this concept of separating from evil, we have to have all of this in mind. We are in a constant fight against the works and the effects of the spiritual forces of darkness. If you didn't know that you're fighting, that means you're probably losing. You have to be aware that you are in a spiritual battle. You have to constantly keep in mind these realities, these invisible realities, and bring the gospel to bear on your life. And if we don't embrace these realities, we're just not going to understand this call to be separate. Proverbs 22.3, a simple proverb that I enjoy bringing up in a variety of situations, says, the prudent sees the evil and hides himself. So what does the wise man do when he sees evil, when he sees calamity, when he sees danger? Well, discernment leads to separation, doesn't it? When you have discernment based on the Word of God, 
that should lead to a change of lifestyle and separating from evil. We must resist the evil one in the present day, knowing that his defeat is sure. His kingdom is temporary, like I mentioned. Praise God for that. His kingdom will be replaced with the physical, explicit kingdom of Christ our Lord. But today is today, and we are to resist him in the here and now. So recognizing that we are in the middle of war, let's consider potential partnerships. Uh, again, next week we'll get into the application. We're just looking mainly at the, at the principles today. I want this to raise questions in your mind, by the way, as we go through this and I just give you principles before getting too deep into application. I want you to have, well, what about this or what about that? I want to have all that in your mind because next week we're going to get into that and you can even shoot me some questions you have to help me preach a better sermon next week. But let's look again at verse 14 in our passage, 2 Corinthians six fourteen, where the command is this, do not be bound together with unbelievers. The command here is for Christians to reject an unequal yoke. Do not be unequally yoked or bound together with one who is against truth, one who is not in Christ with you. Now, yoke here, of course, is uh, the, I guess you could say, old-fashioned farming device, right? Is it still old? Is it old-fashioned or is it still... Jerry, you should know. Okay. Still use it. Okay. But for Americans, maybe it's old-fashioned? I know you love being put on the spot. You want to come up here? No. I'm going to say old-fashioned from our perspective. All right. It was, a way, it was a way of binding together two animals when you were using them in farming purposes to plow. And this principle that Paul is employing here is repurposed from the law because this was in the law of Moses given to Israel that they were not to yoke together a couple of different animals here. And I'll, I want to read to you that passage starting in verse 9 of Deuteronomy 22 because it's not just the two animals being bound together, but there's other stuff at play too. It says in Deuteronomy 22.9, You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed. Or all the produce of the seed which you have sown and the increase of the vineyard will become defiled. Here's the two animals verse, verse 10. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Interesting. In verse 11, you shall not wear a material mixed of wool and linen together. Hmm. Now, we are not under the law. We are led by the Spirit. We are not under the law of Moses, and we are very thankful for that. And so what Paul is doing here is taking a principle out of this passage and saying, just, you know, as in Israel, they were not to plow with two types of animals, the ox and the donkey together. So you too do not be unequally yoked with someone who is of a different kind. Why would you not plow with a donkey and an ox yoked together? Well, it's dumb, number one, all right? It's just not efficient. It doesn't make any sense. But of course, for Israel too, this was just God's way. They were to be set apart in every way at times where it may have seemed convenient to yoke them together or for whatever reason they had. The law said no. Israel was to be set apart as God's holy, special people. And so too, as Christians, as we are to be set apart for God in this life, to be separate from the world, you as an ox or a donkey, whichever one you want to be, I'm going to choose ox, whichever one that you choose to be, do not be bound together with the other. As a believer, do not be unequally yoked, do not be bound together with an unbeliever, 
We are to avoid that situation altogether. Homer Kent, in his commentary, did just a fantastic job putting this all in one sentence. He said, Paul is warning his readers against forming the sort of binding relationships with unbelievers that would weaken their Christian standards or compromise their ability to maintain a consistent witness. Now, I want to dwell on that for a moment. You can see I underlined a couple of phrases. Paul is warning his readers against forming the sort of binding relationships, because we are talking about being bound together, with unbelievers that would, number one, weaken their Christian standards, or, number two, compromise their ability to maintain a consistent witness. That's the overarching principle here of what it means to be unequally yoked. I thought that was just a really, really good sentence that we'd do well to keep in mind. We are to be separate as Christians. We are to be separate from those who reject the fundamentals of our faith, especially if they're claiming the name of Christ. Those who reject the fundamentals of Christian faith, we are to be separate from them. But even more so, if they take the name of Christ. In that first letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 5, starting in verse 9, Paul said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Same kind of idea, right? Be separate. He clarifies, though, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So the stakes get raised here as we deal with people who say they are Christians, but their lifestyle says, no, I am not. Someone who's an immoral person, a swindler, the examples that he lists off. That raises the stakes if they claim the name of Jesus and they take God's name in vain in that sense. So as he drives home the point of not being bound together with unbelievers, Paul uses several terms in reference to yoking. I have them there on your sheet if you're taking notes and you can look at them there in the text. He uses the terms of partnering, fellowshipping, harmonizing, sharing, and agreeing. And I want us to walk through those briefly where he says in verse 14, what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness. Now, of course, the rhetorical question leads to an obvious answer. There is none. But, but what does partnership even mean? Well, it means to join in together, to, to join together. You know how um, sometimes people will say they're going in on something together. They're joining together as partners. Well, the question is, what partnership has righteousness and lawless, lawlessness? The two cannot work together, can they? How can righteousness join in with lawlessness or vice versa? In MacArthur's commentary on this word for partnership, he says, the righteous and the rebellious cannot partner in any common spiritual enterprise because of this absolute contrast between them. They are as separated as sin is from virtue. The righteous and the rebellious cannot partner on any spiritual enterprise. There's no partnership that can exist there. In the next question, he says, what fellowship has light with darkness? We should be familiar with that word fellowship. It's a very good word. 
Our fellowship hall over there is called the Coin, and it's spelled with a K because it's from the Greek word for fellowship, koinonia. That's where we have a lot of our fellowship-type meetings, in addition to this fellowship we're having right now. What kind of fellowship can light have with darkness? None. The word means to share together. What, what kind of share does darkness have in light? Well, none. Because if darkness comes in, there is no light anymore. One of them must win, either light or darkness. They're fundamentally opposed. They're fundamentally in competition with one another. And you know what you can't have when you're in competition, when there has to be a winner and there has to be a loser? You know what you cannot have? Fellowship. There can't be fellowship because fellowship means to share together. He uses the word harmonizing. Another way we can think about yoking is harmonizing. The Greek word here is where we get our English word symphony. How could Christ and Satan harmonize together in the same symphony? There's a way to think about it. How could they ever do such a thing? How could they sing in the same choir? How could Christ and Satan ever be in sync with one another? Their purposes are absolutely opposed in every sense. He says sharing, or what do we have in common in the second half of verse 15? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Here's a question you can ask yourself. What do you as a Christian possess now spiritually or in the future that is the same as an unbeliever? What do believers have in common with unbelievers? It's a great question, isn't it? It's a great question to consider. And we see this, I think, most clearly in our evangelistic conversations. You see, too, that he uses the word agree. What agreement, verse 16, has the temple of God with idols? Sometimes when you're having an evangelistic conversation with someone and the person says, I'm a Christian, but you know this person is not a Christian... This person is just stealing the term Christian to try to sound like he or she is like us when he or she is not. And we have those hard conversations. Sometimes the person will say, well, can't we just focus on what we agree on? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? The answer is there is no agreement. And, and I know that can be really challenging that there have been some religious people that I've talked to who claim the title of Christian, and I tell them, I don't think there's one verse of the Bible we agree on. That's a pretty extreme statement, isn't it? It's like, well, what about the shortest verse? Jesus wept. Surely we agree what that means. Well, who is Jesus? That stops the conversation there, doesn't it? It affects everything in our lives, particularly a relationship with the Word of God, what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? And the answer is none. Therefore, we must be principled as Christians, and we must be discerning as Christians, that we would not be bound together, that we would not be yoked unequally, that we would not be bound together with unbelievers. I want to revisit that quote from Homer Kent, if we could put that back up, just to, again, have that in our minds of how he described this. We have to be discerning to not form the sort of binding relationships with unbelievers 
that would weaken our Christian standards or compromise our ability to maintain a consistent witness. We have to be careful about this. Our church has to be careful about this. That's what this passage is all about. And it's actually something that we talk about in our doctrinal statement. Perhaps you guys don't read the doctrinal statement every night like I do. Before Melissa and I go to bed, I say, hold on, babe, we've got to read the next section. <laughs> in the uh, doctrinal statement, the very last point that we make is on separation. And I just want to read that to you. It says, We believe the saved should be separated unto the Lord Jesus Christ, necessitating holy living in all personal and ecclesiastical associations and relationships. We believe we are responsible to identify false teaching and dangerous movements where they relate to the conduct of the church's ministries. We believe separation is required in those instances where people, groups, and organizations whose doctrinal position is the same as the church's engage in contradictory practices which compromise the faith. It's a strong statement. And next week, we will get into the application of that. I can tell you now, it does not mean that we should disconnect ourselves from society. The application of that isn't, okay, let's go buy a, a plot of land, we're all moving there, we're starting our own community. That's not what that means. It sounds really good most days, but if we did that, we would be neglecting the other things that we are to do, right? Namely, reach the world, be lights of the world. So it doesn't mean that we totally disconnect ourselves, but what it does mean is that we protect ourselves and we protect the church of God. We protect the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. And I want to remind you as we close here of what Paul said again in that first letter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he says to these, these Christians who are still going and joining in the idol worship practices at the pagan temple, he says, I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. I think that's what's at stake here. When we think about separation, we are to be separate from the evil forces of the world, of Satan's domain. And the heart of all of, all of this is that we would live as we are called not that we would just be separate for separation's sake, but that we would be separated to God, that we would be out of this world while we're in this world as we're living for Christ, that we would, that we would uphold the name God has given us as saints, that that would be reflected in the way that we live, that we would be set apart not just from evil, but set apart for holiness. And that's what we'll get into next week. Let's pray. Lord, we can only obey your word by your power. We rely totally and completely on your Spirit's work in us, in our hearts and minds, to draw us nearer to you. And we ask that as we meditate on this passage more throughout this week and for the rest of today, that we would, again, by your Spirit, receive that application that we need, that we would be led by you to make application of these principles in our personal lives. Help us to seriously scrutinize and consider the choices that we make, knowing that there's only one life that we have to live, and it is all for you. Lord, we do not want to drive ourselves crazy over this. We do not want to overthink it, but we want to revere you in all matters of life, and we want to submit to you humbly. Help us to do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.